Tenakoto Katoa, I'm Teresa Cowie and welcome to Insight. This week, the future of irrigation in the regions. The industry that provides water to farmers and growers and the Ministry for Primary Industries argue that irrigation is not only essential to maintain New Zealand living standards and farmers' livelihoods, but can actually improve the environment by evening out the impact of weather cycles and maintaining water levels in rivers. But critics say irrigation can harm the environment by depleting water sources, encouraging intensification on farms and undermining New Zealand's clean green image. The government last year removed state funding from big schemes, but it's still backing smaller projects. Rural reporter Eric Frickberg has been exploring what the changes might mean for some of New Zealand's sun-baked areas. Drive almost anywhere in New Zealand's east coast and you'll come across irrigation equipment. Suspended aluminium pipes, often well over 100 metres long, called pivots or linears, sprinkling water onto dried-out farmland. And this in a country where many a picnic, cricket game or even summer holiday is ruined by persistent drizzle. It's the topography that does it. Rain-bearing trade winds are drained of moisture, leaving central Otago, Canterbury, Marlborough, Wairarapa, Hawkesbury, Gisborne to bake to a lifeless brown most summers, a problem forecast to get worse with climate change. So why not use technology to change at least some of that? Irrigation does have a cost, it's about 470 a hectare we think, but you know, in a dry Hawke's Bay summer you can already see these plants on the headland here starting to wilt. That means we can actually keep the plants going. That's Hawke's Bay farmer Hugh Ritchie reflecting on irrigation systems that are not just desirable but to him essential. Terry Hyler is an international water engineer and former head of Irrigation New Zealand who thinks water is plentiful in this country and it should be used. We're so blessed per capita the second highest amount of water per person than anywhere else in the world apart from Iceland. What makes us special is our water. We should be focused on our water. Dr Hyler's call for a focus on water has been supported and acted on by his successors at Irrigation New Zealand. Andrew Curtis points to food-producing areas that couldn't grow anything without pumped water but prosper with it. We have wet years and we have dry years, but in some places we have a lot more dry years than wet years. And we do have some environments, particularly central Otago, which have very low rainfalls. Canterbury, there is a massive water deficit during the summer and water is required if you want productive agriculture. New Zealand's official history website, Te Ara, says irrigation began as long ago as the 1880s when water rights were acquired for sluicing during the gold rushes and they were converted into water rights to irrigate farmland and rapidly became entrenched property rights. Within half a century, these ad hoc beginnings had turned into organised irrigation schemes. From semi-desert to fertile land, the largest irrigation scheme in New Zealand, the Rangitata, where, strange to hear, we're providing water for 210,000 acres, a region that doesn't get enough rain. This newsreel from 1938 celebrates New Zealand as a land of constant progress, irrigators and others making things better all the time. This man-made stream is 40 miles long, 
and took the digging out of 2,400,000 cubic yards. By 2017, there were almost 800,000 hectares of irrigated land in New Zealand, almost two-thirds of it in Canterbury. This amounts to 3% of New Zealand's total land area and about 8% of the nation's farmed land. Besides Canterbury, big irrigation projects can be found in Otago, Marlborough, Hawke's Bay and elsewhere. But, according to Dr Hyler, even doing all that takes just a sip from the total amount of water that is available. New Zealand in total uses 2% of our total water resource. In Canterbury, it's about 8 to 10%. The amount of water that's left in the system is still enormous. But Annabeth Cohen, who handles water for Forest and Bird, says irrigation schemes offer the public false hope. She says letting water flow into the ocean is vital for the ecology of both the river valleys and coastal regions, and dams and other irrigation projects do not provide the solutions they claim for themselves. It sounds like a dream come true to have all that water available, but it's basically false hope. We're not farming the right thing in the right place, given the environmental limits that we're encountering and will encounter with regards to climate change. There are dry regions in Australia where they're forecasting the amount of water on a year-to-year basis. In New Zealand, we hand out water consents for 35 years. That's promising resources that are not available now and will surely not be available in the future. If you can't live within the current environmental limits, how do you think we're going to fare when climate change changes all of that? Despite opposition from groups like Forest and Bird, irrigation schemes continued to be built. The last big project to open was Canterbury's Central Plains Water Scheme, which diverts the area's rivers via canals and pipes. But this project was no easy deal. It was so fraught it helped sink Canterbury's elected regional councillors and had them replaced with state-appointed commissioners because work at the council had slowed to a crawl amid acrimony over the scheme. Despite these disputes, Central Plains Water did get approval to go ahead and Stage 1 and 2 of the scheme are now operative. Among the farmers who signed up is Stu Wright, a wheat and barley grower whose family has farmed near Sheffield for 125 years. Joining Central Plains has cost him $8,000 a hectare and he still has to break even on his investment, but he says it was still worthwhile, in fact essential. We were the big clover growers in Canterbury, but now there's hardly any clover growing up here simply because the irrigated guys can grow better crops. And what we've found over time is that if you're a dryland farmer, you're getting paid on irrigated prices, but you can't match the production. So we were suddenly finding not enough income basically to meet what we need, plus we just weren't getting contracts because the people that are growing them want people that can provide regular and consistent yields. Plus you throw in climate change and where things are going and the political environment, Central Plains was probably the last option to get water on the Canterbury Plains and we had a family discussion and we decided we've been here for well over 100 years if we want to be here for well over another 100 years then we need water. Stu Wright adds the scheme actually works for the environment because farmers now take more surface water for their crops and pump less water from the aquifer and it's enabled them to grow a wider range of plants. We've always been reasonably diverse with sea potatoes. As we've got this water now, we're looking to grow other crops. We're 
gone back to radish. We've upped our ryegrass area once again because we can get the yields. But the other one that's been really interesting is we've hooked up with Marlborough garlic from Blenheim and we're growing, last year we grew 12 and a half hectares of garlic for them. This year we've got 16. I'm Eric Frickberger and you're listening to an Insight program that explores the future of irrigation in the regions. In its most recent annual report, Central Plains said it had delivered over 90 million cubic metres of water to 152 customers with no significant outages. And Dr Hylas says this scheme is more than just an economic bonus. In Central Plains we're taking alpine water from the Rakaia River. That's water that would normally go out to sea and we're directing some of that onto the plains. That means that the demand on groundwater is reduced. People that were pumping from deep wells in that upper part of Central Plains are not pumping anymore. Also, because we've introduced alpine water onto the plains, every year when it rains, there's more drainage into the aquifer. Therefore, the aquifer pressures and volumes increase. Those aquifers feed the Avon River through Christchurch, the Selwyn River and the slower reaches. They go into Lake Ellesmere. Terry Hyler says this environmental success was never planned. It happened anyway. But if it had been planned, then the results could have been even better. But Annabeth Cohen questions whether it's a success at all, saying interfering with the natural flow of water down a river is a risky thing to do. We have to understand the way a river works. It's, you know, connecting the mountains to the sea and everything in between, from wetlands, um, coastal regions, uh, lakes, streams, um, even the glaciers. You know, a river needs to flow freely in order to connect the biodiversity that uses that corridor, um, but also the natural functions of a river, like cooling um, the area or rehydrating the groundwater. Uh, when you disconnect a river, you interrupt those natural processes, which makes you more at risk in the face of climate change. While these arguments went back and forth, Annabeth Cohen had the satisfaction of seeing the irrigation tide drift her way due to official policy. First of all, a series of rulings by the previous and current governments compelled local authorities to improve the environmental health of their rivers. These policies hovered in the background as council after council voted or planned to vote to raise the minimum flow of water down their rivers. Drinking water might take priority, but irrigation water could be sacrificed. And then last April came this. Mr Speaker, our government has said we always support irrigation, but we have stated quite clearly that we will not ask pensioners and paperboys to contribute to private large-scale schemes. Mr Speaker, the government has better priorities that will give New Zealanders a fairer chance. That was the Minister of Agriculture, Damien O'Connor, in Parliament last April, defending a plan to end public funding for big irrigation schemes. Three projects, Central Plains Water Stage 2, the Kurao Duntroon Scheme and the Waimea Dam near Nelson continued because they were too far advanced for their legal contracts to be easily unravelled. But citing environmental worries, the government pulled state funding from Hurunui in North Canterbury, from Hunter Downs in South Canterbury and from Flaxbourne in Marlborough. And that knocked the irrigation industry off its feet, but there was more to come. 
It's a complex legal issue, and the High Court found in favour of the Director-General's decision to do the land swap. Uh, then that was overturned at the Appeal Court by a split decision. We needed to go ahead, and I know people were agitated at the idea that we had to go to the Supreme Court. That was the former but Conservation the Minister, Maggie Barry, lamenting a Supreme Court ruling that killed off plans to dam up to 93 million cubic metres of water in Central Hawke's Bay's Ruatanifa Basin. The ruling meant the proposed multi-million dollar scheme would not be available to help increase the flow of water down the Tokitoki River, but those enhanced flows would still have to happen. Living downstream from where that dam would have been is Hugh Ritchie, who farms near the central Hawke's Bay settlement of Ōtane. He uses irrigation water from deep bores on his land. Driving round his fields, he shows one crop that simply must have irrigation water. This is a crop of seed carrot. This is a highly specialist hybrid seed carrot crop, and that is totally dependent on having water for the contract. Without water, we don't get the contract. Didn't and why they? would that be? Because the, the multiplications contracts for these crops are sort of international, so the, the company is committing to do the seed production has to also guarantee they're going to get a crop so they can provide the seed. New Zealand provides about 75% of the world's carrot seed total. So, you know, it's a specialist business and and they need absolute reliability of crop. So, again, controlling that water is is a critical part of that. So in a way your hands are tied, you have to have the water or you can't sell the product? Uh, We won't even get a contract to even work the ground up without having water on hand and, and reliable summer water, not just water that may be switched off halfway through. It has to be guaranteed through the summer. Hugh Ritchie says his bore water is not stream depleting, so he might escape the problems facing many farmers in this region. But the deep bore supply is still limited, so it must be carefully rationed, partly through crop rotation, and not just to protect the soil, but to use a finite quantum of water strategically. It's a reasonably limited supply of water, so part of our strategy around that is, is having rotations and, and different crops so that the demand for the water we can move around through the season so that as one crop's being harvested that effectively takes pressure off the water and we can then concentrate that water in other crops. Not all farmers in the region have the buffer that Hugh Ritchie has and some will be inevitable victims of the region's water quandary. The mayor of Central Hawke's Bay, Alex Walker, explains further. Lifting of the river flows means that there is the potential for significant water bans in six out of ten years. But there is no um, forecast that will tell us which of those six years are on ban and which are not. So if you're investing in your business and deciding what crops to plant... It's pretty much impossible to be able to do that. Looking down the barrel of six out of ten years, we don't know which ones, where there will be significant water bans. A lot of decisions made disparately altogether, but without necessarily seeing what the full consequences might be. How do you feel about the process that led to this? Fair to say frustrated. Frustrated that we are in this situation which has come together from lots of fragmented bits of information and, and also fragmented emotion. Uh, so not always delivered by good fact and good science and good reasoning. Approximately 40 farmers, orchardists and business owners are thought to be in the firing line when it comes to water supplies. Many of them face water rationing. They might just survive, but then again they might not. And the best they've got so far 
is more time to transition to a new strict regime in whatever way they can. Alistair Halliburton is a pet food manufacturer who heads a group of local firms and businesses trying to deal with this problem. We're now faced with a clear understanding that the environmental window during the summer where nature can't supply water to our businesses is larger than it used to be and now probably not feasible for us. We can't realistically plan to continue our activities unimpacted. It will impact us and it makes the businesses really high risk, which is going to be a deterrent to investment and continuation and development. The region faces another new problem, an extra set of water drilling opportunities, labelled Tranche 2, issued when the Ruatanifa Dam was still on the cards, but still in existence, even though the dam isn't. Six applications for this water, totalling 24.5 million cubic metres a year, are currently being processed, even though it's not certain enough water will be available to meet their requests. Then there's the problem of having to send more water down the Tukituki River when there's arguably not enough water upstream. The chief executive of the Hawke's Bay Regional Council, James Palmer, says that ruling was made by a board of inquiry which was considering the dam. When the Tukituki plan was put through uh, the board of inquiry, a decision was taken by that board to increase uh, the minimum flows by approximately 25% in 2018 and then another 25% in 2023. The 2018 minimum flow increase is now in place and uh, fortunately we've had some rain in recent weeks but uh, if it does dry off in the summer to the point that the river triggers at that level uh, we'll be into a situation where the surface water uh, users and the groundwater users who are connected to the surface will be coming under restrictions in terms of the irrigation. Spearheading concerns about all this is a group of Waipukuro farmers and business people led by Mr Halliburton. He says all these problems have left a huge water deficit in the region, which must be made up somehow. We need to disconnect some of the criticisms that are levelled at irrigation, that irrigation equals dairying, which in turn equals environmental degradation. And that's really just a series of assumptions which cannot be used to guide what our future strategy is going to be. Irrigation is about the reliable growing of plants over the summer season. It may or may not be used for dairying. And if it is used for dairying, then dairying clearly can be done in a whole number of ways and the environmental impact of that can have a whole series of different outcomes. What's happened in the past is not a predictor of how we deal with the future. Downriver from Waipukuro is one of the most productive agricultural regions in New Zealand, the Hiratonga Plains. While horticulture and cropping have doubled in size nationally in 25 years, nowhere has come close to tipping over what locals call the fruit bowl of New Zealand. Horticulture in general, and wine in particular, use less water than the dairy industry and have far lower greenhouse gas emissions, so they're sometimes seen as an environmental silver bullet, a way to clean up the environment and pay the bills. But the region's use of 90 million cubic metres of irrigation water a year, though well short of its 161 million allocation, is widely seen to be already at the limit of its sustainability, and new applications have been blocked. Yet horticultural output in Hawke's Bay is forecast to grow, which means more water will be needed than at present. Ben James is the president of the Hawke's Bay Fruit Growers Association, and he thinks the region is getting by for now. 
I think there's enough water for long-term growth as long as we all uh, start to manage it properly. And what would that require? Smarter, more efficient irrigation systems, better understanding of soil and how our, how our plants use the moisture when they need the moisture. Would there be any need for any more water storage or taking more water from the river or anything like that? Definitely water storage is an option going forward. We don't have enough water for peak times uh, in our one- and ten-year drought scenarios. The problem comes at the pinch point, you know, the, the hottest part of the season when everybody wants the water. So that's where the storage solutions will come in to help us out through these pinch points, these really dry times. Yet the storage scheme proposed for Hawke's Bay simply isn't on the cards anymore. Environmentalists like Annabeth Cohen think it shouldn't be. Technology should not be used to help New Zealand live beyond its environmental means. But farmers say they've got no choice, and many point out that the country needs economic development to thrive. Faced with this conundrum, the government has opted to look two ways at once on irrigation projects. It's blocked funding for big schemes but allowed smaller ones to proceed and even offered them taxpayer dollars via the Provincial Growth Fund. The minister in charge of this fund, Shane Jones, issued a passionate defence of his programme in Parliament. We understand how important water is as we move through the transition economy. To that end, sir, environmentally robust, sustainable water storage initiatives, water management, the uh, road to the Provincial Growth Fund for such matters is not unlike a primrose path. Approximately 20 people or organisations have so far tiptoed up this primrose path, seeking help for small to medium-sized irrigation schemes from the public purse. Details of their applications haven't been divulged, but the Minister's Office describes one scheme that has been approved, a water storage project in Northland worth approximately $15 million. In addition, several smaller schemes with budgets under a million dollars have been approved by officials at the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment. Shane Jones was adamant in Parliament that this plan was well thought out. The provinces deserve assurances, and I, as their first citizen, wish them to be heartened by the fact, sir that we understand how important water is as we move through the transition economy with suitable partnerships, either by grant, equity or other arrangements, continue to spread the fiscal elixir. Thank you very much. Rules for the Provincial Growth Fund-assisted irrigation schemes were signed off by ministers just before Christmas and are due to be published about now. They say approved schemes will not be allowed to increase the number of farm animals on a given plot of land. Schemes will have to be commercially viable and they'll also be aimed largely at areas where Māori land is undeveloped. They'll have to be small to medium in size and approximately $80 million is expected to be spent to help them get started. Telephoned while on holiday in Northland, Mr Jones explained the reasons for schemes like the Kaikōhe one. The moral justification for doing this is that there is land that is in an idle state. It needs to be brought into a productive level of utilisation. It's not exclusively Māori land, and a lot of the Māori land, the only way you're going to enhance the uh, capacity of that land is to introduce water to it. It is very productive land naturally, but obviously it's blighted by poor ownership structures in the past, but most importantly, you can't fulfil the full capacity of the land without water. But it's not exclusively Māori land.
Irrigation schemes have been strongly opposed by the Labour-led government's other support party, the Greens. Last April's wind-down of state funding for big irrigation projects was part of the supply and confidence agreement between the Green and Labour parties. But the Green Party wasn't available for comment over Shane Jones' plan to press on with state funding for smaller ones. However, the former head of Irrigation New Zealand, Terry Hyler, says blocking large irrigation schemes but approving small ones is a politically driven cop-out. It's not logical. In fact, it's quite stupid. You may decide to build a small scheme, but you should do it through logic. This is better for everybody if we do it that way, not just saying we won't have any big schemes because they're bad. They're not bad at all. In fact, with more money involved, they could be more sophisticated. They could be run with computer-based systems much more efficiently. You might finish with a whole lot of bloody puddle holes with these little ones. I, I think it's political and it's not logical. Annabeth Cohen from Forest and Bird also dislikes small schemes, but for different reasons. Dams are expensive. The infrastructure and the planning up front, millions of dollars, the repairs for decades afterwards... We're not building resilience. Instead of preparing for the future, we're just ignoring the reality. In some cases, small-scale schemes could be helpful, but I don't think it's the silver bullet. Basically, you need to look at the local conditions, have a look at what climate change is going to do in that area, and you know, make a value judgment about what sort of farming is going to be using that irrigation Horticulture New Zealand's chief executive Mike Chapman says liking or disliking irrigation is beside the point. You simply have to have it, and not just for the farmers and the growers. Plants need water to grow. You've got to have the water available when it's needed. Climate change is coming, and what we're seeing, particularly down the eastern side of the country, is more shortages during hot summers. And so you've got to go to water storage. Water storage is the way of the future. It's the only way we're going to successfully continue growing horticulture, being able to feed New Zealand and give urban New Zealand on the East Coast water. Mike Chapman adds this helps New Zealand to pay its way, but there's an even more basic reason for these schemes. Food supply for New Zealand is number one. People need vegetables. And basically with vegetables, you're talking about locally grown because if you want healthy, fresh vegetables, they need to be locally grown. So number one, we need to focus in New Zealand about feeding New Zealand and then we need to focus on export. At present, 47% of irrigated land in New Zealand is used for dairy farms and 29% is used for arable crops and horticulture. But horticulture and vegetables produce four times the export revenue per hectare that dairy does and have been hailed by the present government as a good switch for farmers to make. They use less water than dairy, but they still need some and without irrigation say they won't get enough. Annabeth Cohen of Forest and Bird, though, says farmers must change their ways. I think that we need to look at reframing the way that we farm. We've got to look at a resilient system in the face of climate change. Um, And so that means monoculture systems are really going to be at a higher risk when we don't have the necessary rainfall or we have to experience a drought or a flood comes through, you know, disease and pests. If economy is the number one driver, then the environment is going to lose. Faced with these arguments, the government looks set on a middle path, allowing enough water to hopefully avert a crisis. That programme was written and presented by rural reporter Eric Freckberg with additional material from Maya Burry. 
If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz slash insight or go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on Insight, Annika Smith investigates what drives some teenagers to kill. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next time. Listener.